0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. It's a changing world, Tyler. We hear about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. Uh, The IPCC report, the International Panel on Climate Change, uh, sixth update came out earlier this year, strikingly affirming uh, anthropomorphic impacts and drivers of climate change. there are coastal communities all around the American shoreline struggling to figure out how to contend with the changes coming their way. And that's going to be the topic area. Uh, But the sub area that we're in is in the real estate market and how climate change and specifically sea level rise is impacting
1: the real estate market. We have a great guest to do that. Yes. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, We're going to be talking about bonds we're going to be talking about financing we're going to be talking about money we're going to be talking about how money moves around and how risk is calculated yeah and if you're like me this is not your strong suit but (laughs) we need to learn more about it it's very important we do indeed and the research that's going on uh in this field i think is going to really help us understand how climate change is actually affecting our society not only uh in local Uh, jurisdictions, but even more broadly. Yeah, society at large. It is. I think it's very fascinating stuff. Peter, who's on the show today? So Dr. Ryan Lewis
0: at the University of Colorado Boulder is a professor of finance and co-author of several papers on the issue of the economic implications of sea level rise. A couple of papers I want to mention. Sea level rise and the municipal bond yields, a paper that was published. Uh, broadly, October 6th of this year made available uh, a very detailed analysis of uh, how bond yields have been changed or are affected by uh, the notion of rising sea levels in coastal communities. Uh, the second paper, and I think the focus today is a paper he co-authored called The Disaster on the Horizon, The Price Effect of Sea Level Rise. It came out in 2018. Um, And part of a body of work from a lot of researchers and economists around the world who are taking a hard look at the financial implications of sea level rise. Uh, Emily Mazzucarati from Moody Analytics, who was on the show about a month ago, uh, leads a division of people at Moody's uh, investigating this. and, And Dr. Lewis and the team that he works with also doing some real groundbreaking work on sea level rise in economics. So
1: I'm really looking forward to hearing from him. It's a really interesting way to think about risk and to think about how we can measure this stuff you know if you're a scientist you know we we talk with the engineers we talk with the people who are dealing with describing the world through uh you know measuring temperatures and measuring you know vertical datums and all that (laughs) right this is a different way of measuring what's happening From a social perspective. Correct. And I think it's just going to be a fascinating show. I very much look forward to it, but let's first have a word from our sponsors.
0: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now email me to learn more at chloe at com. that's chloe at com. hope to hear from you and enjoy the show
1: dr lewis welcome to the american shoreline podcast thank you for having me well uh i think it's always good to begin with a little bit about you uh can you introduce our audience to yourself and how you became uh, interested in econ- uh be- being an
2: economist and specifically your interest in sea level rise it's a good question. Um, the story of me becoming uh, interested in economics uh, and finance more specifically is kind of just being very bored with my existing job and um, r- deciding that I needed something new and having a conversation with a friend at one point who just said, you should get a PhD. I said, oh, all right, why not? Um, and ended up doing that, um, had a really good advisor through grad school who kind of Guided my research toward uh, how financial markets um, think about pricing risk, think about pricing assets, as as you were saying, Tyler. Um, and I, uh, y- you know, I was taking more of the traditional stock market, bond market, uh, you know, looking at these issues. And toward the end of my uh, my time there, I I, I was speaking with my, fa- my my father-in-law, and he was like, "Well, you know, how does this how does this really connect with who you are and what you believe in?" And I said, "I don't know." Um, so So I started thinking about that, and and i at, at at a similar time, sort of really begun investigating sea level rise as an issue and and sort of generally climate change. And I kind of just like sat there one night and thought about how how do I connect these things?" And it all just kind of became clear. and i I went to my advisor the next day, and I said, "Here's what I want to do for my main dissertation paper." And mind you, I I was like six months away from graduating and he said, (laughs) "Um, no, (laughs) you're not going to do that for your main dissertation paper. Uh, Once you have a job, you can you can look at these issues. And so I I got a job and and the first thing I I did was sort of reach out to Asaf and Matt, who who I knew would be interested in this stuff and and who um, who seemed to have the tools. And and we just kind of went from there.
0: Yeah, for the benefit of, of the audience out there, and in recognition of your colleagues, you have a similar group of guys that you've been working with. Can you can you introduce us to your co-authors on the papers and your research?
2: Yeah, they're 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 great gentlemen. Uh, a soft Bernstein, who is my colleague at um, at University of Colorado, and Matt Gustafson, who I actually went to undergrad with. Uh, he's at uh, Penn State, so the three of us tend to write together on this issue.
0: Well, it is, uh, you know, since the International uh, Panel on Climate Change was formed, I think, 1988. uh, So that's uh, about 40 years ago that we've had this focus uh, in the world on climate change. Uh, The implications, the understanding of climate change have really accelerated in the last 10 years, uh, becoming more and more important. When you looked at this issue and made this connection that your father-in-law suggested, and uh, that's a great story, by the way, to have your career influenced in a positive way by your father-in-law. I think that's good good advice. That's good for family vibes, for sure. Um, What, what, uh, what, where did you start? How did you pull that connection together? What was the implication that you were interested in exploring?
2: Well. you know, as as we know, th- th- there's a lot of ways to think about risk, right? As I'm sure you, you, both of you have, have talked ad nauseum at this show is, you know, there's a physical risk to things happening, right? And one of the first things you learn when you're studying economics, and particularly financial economics, is that that physical risk isn't necessarily how markets think about risk. And so, you know, when I when I started connecting uh, climate change and and sort of financial markets, what I wanted to understand was, yes, there might be some physical risk out there that affects certain assets or certain properties. How do I how do I figure out whether or not the market is actually pricing those risks, whether it's thinking about those risks as relevant to the value of the asset, um, and so. You know, my, my first thought was, oh, may, maybe I'll look at sort of equity markets, firms that might be more exposed to climate risk. You know, however broad, however broadly we want to define that. Um, and, and the problem there is that it's very hard to find two exactly equivalent firms, one of which has this exposure to climate risk and the other doesn't. and And that's sort of the setting you would want to really be able to say, oh, well, you know, This is how the market is exactly thinking about climate risk. A control
0: Um, that is unaffected that you can compare apples to apples with a firm that might be in their stock
2: price or in their asset valuation. That's exactly right. Hard to find that. This is and this is the gold standard of scientific discovery, right? You want to control Mm -hmm. and then, you know, something that is treated and you want to compare some outcome on the control versus the treated. so, you know, I got to thinking more and more, you know, what, what market could we explore this in where you could maybe get closer to having that control and treated? Um, and, you know, I just sort of iterated, you know, through the markets that are out there and, and, and it just kind of dawned on me, it's gotta, be, uh, it's gotta be real estate markets, right? Tons of houses sell, some of which are, are om- almost identical to each other if I could figure out a way to say, oh, well, these ones are uh, exposed to climate risk and these ones are not, then we'd be off to the races. Then yeah. we'd have our study. You know, that's the bones of the study. And then it's just about sort of executing. And so so that was my idea to begin with. And, and then when I pulled Matt and Asaf and you know, we really kind of as a team refined together sort of found these amazing maps from NOAA, uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric. Yes, yep, our favorite, yeah, our, federal, it, our favorite, our favorite federal, our favorite federal agency, our favorite yeah, yeah. federal agency. Uh, uh, they're the best. Um, they are the best. You know, and, and they obviously do the real scientific work that, <laughs> that underpins everything that I've done. Um, so we found these maps and, you know, it was just a, a wonderful discovery and we reached out to them and, and they were super great in providing all the data to us. And then it was just about matching those maps to actual property prices. Um, and that's where sort of Zillow also has been, has been really supporting academic research um, through their Ztax program. And they were super helpful, provided us, you know, with the house price data. And that's how we kind of got all the pieces in place to run the study. So are you looking
1: all around the American shoreline? And did you, did you look at certain regions? What? How much data are you pulling here? I could imagine it's monst—you know—just the volume must be crazy. The real yeah. estate market is big, as you say, a lot of players.
2: More the merrier, right? So, so ideally, you want to be able to, you know, make a statement about the entire globe, essentially. Of course, we're we're sort of constrained to look at the U.S. and and really the data is is um, is good in the you know contiguous forty-eight states. So that's where we focus. Um, some states actually do not provide very good house price transaction data. So, you know, in those states w- we have less of a sample, but for the most part, you know, it's, it's pretty much all the states. And, and actually on, on our website, um, I don't know if I've updated this, but you can see a state by state analysis that we've done and they're, they're almost all in there. Is that right? Well, all, almost all the coastal states. <laughs> well, let's give the website out now. <laughs> so
0: while people are listening to the show, if you're not driving,
2: uh, take a look at this while we're talking to Ryan. Uh, what's the website that? If you Google, Google up uh, Ryan Lewis and call, CU Colorado, uh, it should come right up.
0: Well, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And, and uh, I want to start with this notion of the difference between how uh, maybe common, everyday Americans understand and perceive risk versus how the market understands and perceives risk. And why is it different?
2: Yeah, there are gonna be a lot of reasons why sort of these two things are different. I mean, um, you know, the, an individual uh, may need to be ex- uh, exposed to all of the knowledge um, about a, an asset or a house, um, whereas sort of the market in aggregate could impound that information nicely and sort of the, the, the people who actually transact under, are, are the ones who sort of understand that risk or are learning from prices um, uh, to know, you know, to infer what those risks are. Um, I think, sort of taking a step back, um, you know, the way markets think about risk generally, and I, I say markets think, they don't actually think, but right. the, the way we think about how markets uh, behave is that, you know, things that, um, you know, affect the value of assets and do so uh, especially when we are, you know, poor or otherwise... uh, Vulnerable. Vulnerable, sure. Uh, Those sorts of things tend to garner a low price, right? Because anything that gives me... uh, Sorry, a high price, excuse me. Anything that's giving me money when, when sort of I'm already wealthy, that's great. Things that sort of pay out when I'm, I'm otherwise uh, wealthy, when I, uh, you know, my portfolio, my stock portfolio is doing well, I, I'm super happy about the world, give me a little more money, I, you know, it doesn't really, it's not that impactful to me. Got Those it. sorts of assets tend to have sort of uh, lower prices and, and, and by fa- you know, uh, less by implication a- higher returns. And less affected by risk, a little well, you, you 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 think that those assets are actually potentially even even more risky right because they're the ones that sort of pay out when we're otherwise wealthy and and wow. and the assets that sort of pay out when we're otherwise poor those are like the the assets that kind of hedge our risk in some sense um, so there's this idea in markets that uh, that certain assets should have low prices and certain assets at high high prices when we when we, we kind of take that to the sea level rise setting in particular the the housing setting, if I'm going to buy an asset that is going to you know, potentially be flooded 10, 15, 20 years, and, and if we think about the average sort of U.S. homeowner, almost all of their wealth is, is tied up in their home, right? Yep. So you've got an asset that, that, that's potentially going to be worthless at some point where all of your retirement savings, potentially everything that you're gonna pass on to your kids is tied up in this asset. Well, that's exactly what I've described as an asset that is extremely risky, okay. right? It's going to have very low returns and low, you know, it's gonna be worthless when I'm poor, and I'm poor because my home is, is underwater, right? So this is the kind of risk that we think as sort of financial economists, markets should really price, okay. right? A, a risk where, where sort of it wipes out my entire life savings when this asset sort of fails, that's something that, that everyone needs to care about, okay. right? And so and that's part of the reason why we thought uh, real estate was a really great place to look because if I can sort of have a really well diversified portfolio of, of, of stocks, you know, maybe some of them are exposed to a little bit of climate risk, I don't know how much I care about that got because it. I've got the other ones that'll pay out um, If, you know, if, if, if things, things go bad, right. But, but if it's my house, that's something I'm really going to have to look into and really think, think hard about whether I want to bear that risk. Uh, um,
1: Okay. I, I just want to go back. This is a basic, like probably econ 101 question, but you use this term market behavior Yeah, and I find that to be kind of an interesting concept because of course supply and demand is what uh, sets a price that's right Um, but this idea of market behavior kind of introduces the idea that maybe uh, I don't know that that can like change that that the price point can shift based on some new way of looking at the situation New maybe new information comes to light can you just explain market behavior broadly cuz I I'm interested in that. You know, you think about a beach house, of course, it's, it's beautiful, high demand. There's only God isn't making any more beach houses as my grandfather used to say, like you might as well just, uh, you know, that you can't go wrong there. People are more people on the planet, more demand
2: makes sense. But you, this, this is a new concept explain that to us. Yeah. So I I think you described half of it right there. Uh, God is not making any more beach houses. So we know the supply is fixed, right? And so, really, all we need to think about in terms of changing prices is how demand changes, right? And Tyler, I think you know one of the you highlighted information, right? That is one of the major things that drives prices. If if new information comes out and that sort of leads us to re- reevaluate the value of an asset, that will likely then go into prices. Um, and so. I completely agree. And I think um, if you look at the data, uh, coastal real estate has done very well. The the, the prices keep going up, up, up. And the question is whether or not new information about truly how long these coastal homes or or these um, sort of sea level rise exposed homes will be viable does that actually make its way, does that change market behavior? Does that change the prices of these assets, right? And so, um, you know, uh, it's a very, I think, difficult question to answer um, because for exactly the reason you stated, which was, you know, a lot of people are demanding these homes. How do you disentangle something like constantly increasing demand for a coastal home with new information uh, that you all highlighted at the beginning of the, the show that's like, hey, uh, sea level rise is getting worse. Some of these homes may or may not make it to the end of the century. They may or may not make it to well, the next 50 years. And the other thing that comes to mind is that coastal properties have always been risky. And so
1: in and, and, just, and in spite of that, risk have been going up in price. And we've always, even before sea level rise was a common phrase, uh, we know that coastal places have been more risk exposed
0: well and and it does seem difficult to disentangle because uh the the proposition nowadays is that the the covid pandemic has driven demand for more remote properties particularly beach homes as having a strong effect an upward price pressure uh and that the emergence of uh short-term lending opportunities in Airbnb and VRBO uh, have also driven and changed the economic equation on coastal property or recreational property like this. I want to know what the hypothesis was. I liked what you said is that when you have all your chips on one square, essentially when you're putting your asset base into a home, there is a clear risk that's understandable and visible when it occurs is not predictable. You're really. comparing it to roulette? Well, it is. I mean, what he's saying is if you have an asset that has got a clear risk and it's an all or nothing, you would expect, I think, that the the hypothesis and this kind of wondering is the hypothesis, therefore, that if there is a place where we would see price implications of sea level rise, this is the kind of situation where it should be visible. Is that, is that basically the premise of the hypothesis of the – Steady.
2: I think you've nailed it. Yeah, th- that was sort of, uh, you know, if you're going to see it anywhere, it should be in home prices, and and you might see it in other places as well yeah. as as some of my work and and, and a number of other uh, great financial economists have have sort of uh, explored. But if there's one real place you're def- you know definitely going to see it, it should be in house prices. Um, the other reason why we thought um, connecting sort of real estate and, and, in particular, sea level rise was important, there are plenty of climate risks out there, right? Uh, I, I, as a Coloradan, face, you know, wildfire fire and drought risk. Yep. But it's very hard for me to really describe exactly how exposed I am to those risks. You know, th- there's lots of scientific modeling about how much wetter or warmer um, or less wet uh, Colorado will become. And I think Colorado is one of those states where it's not entirely clear. Um, but I don't, I can't really translate for yeah. me what that means as a homeowner. Um, yeah. Whereas if you think about something like sea level rise, and in particular, again, coming back to these NOAA maps. The risk is—I mean, again—there's a lot of uncertainty. I, I don't want to overstate how certain scientists uh, are about sea level rise, and I think they will say that there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Um, but relative to the other types of climate risk out there, this seems to be one that's particularly well defined, right? Yeah, I like These it. maps will are very well, um, you know, very high detail, high resolution maps that will tell you, you know this property is our best guess. This is likely going to be exposed to, you know, after one foot, say, of global average sea level rise. We think that this thing's going to get chronically flooded. Right. And that's how you read these maps. And I think it tells you a lot of, you know, a fairly well defined uh, amount of risk that you face at the property level. Got it. And so, you know, that's why we kind of connected real estate with sea level rise, because one, it's a risk people should care about because it, it affects the value of their home, their, their kind of primary asset. And two, we as economists could measure exactly or, again, I hate to use the word exact, but exactly what people think that risk is—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's one definite exposure or non-exposure. It's not like we ran eight hundred million models and sixty of them have right. you know Colorado. It's they're getting this amount of moisture and 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 what what A discernible
0: factor. It's vivid enough. As I we like to say, if you want to understand climate change, look in the water. It's a very difficult concept to think of atmospherically and what it'll do. But like you're saying. The digital elevation models and the, uh, and the mapping that has been done both by FEMA and by NOAA, they know the terrain fairly precisely nowadays. The elevation projections are very accurate. And if you inundate those properties with an additional foot of water or two feet, you can tell kind of precisely where the water is going to go. This is actually clear enough now to study. So the idea was, when you went into this study, um, I would like to know a little bit about the method. Like, tell us about how you paired up the control versus the exposed houses. And then, of course, we want to know the, the $64,000 question. Was your hypothesis correct? But tell us how you, how you set up. The method. Yes, the method. How can you compare house A and house B, one exposed, one less exposed? How did you determine that group of?
2: properties. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a great question. And I, I'm going to use maybe too much lingo. So, you know, or jargon, please stop me if, if I do. And and we can, yeah. we can, uh, we can roll it back. So um, you know, once we had this data, uh, again, all I, I want to emphasize, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants here, uh, these folks really laid the groundwork. And all we did was sort of uh, apply some elementary code to kind of get things all matched up. Uh, but, but the idea we had and, and, and what we really wanted to be able to study um, is if you had one home that was exposed to long-term climate risk through sea level rise, could you compare that to another home that was otherwise identical and did not have that sea level rise exposure? And otherwise identical is the key sort of uh, the key idea here. So uh, the problem is, and and this is a problem we found out really early in the study, the problem is if you were to just plot uh, exposure to sea level rise risk as a function of distance from the coast, Mm -hmm. sea level rise is very correlated with distance from the coast. Now, as we've already highlighted, if you were to also plot prices as a function of distance to coast, you would also find that prices are very highly correlated with distance to coast. So the key obstacle is extracting the sea level rise risk from distance in some sense. Um, And our method for doing it was was the simplest way we thought possible and uh, I think it, it did the job and I'll tell you why I think it did the job in a second. But what we did was we just divided the coastline into uh, little bands of distance. So, 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 you know, hundred foot bands where we're only comparing homes that are in the same hundred foot band, uh, of distance from the coast. And so, you know, we're going to look within the same zip code, within the same distance to coast band within the same, uh, month of the year transaction. Um, and then, you know, uh, the the, the the data is so rich, we can compare what we think is effectively the same home, same size, number of bedrooms, bathrooms, uh, home quality, age, so year built, um, and all these things. And uh, the U.S. house market is so sort of prolific that that we can run all those controls and still have plenty of comparison groups where we have, you know, what we now think is, you know, almost an identical property trading at the same time one of which is exposed to the sea level rise risk. They appear in these NOAA maps that that show that they'll they'll have some chronic tidal flooding at some point versus the homes that are not. And that's sort of where we set up our control group. Well, I'm just trying to
1: wrap my mind around uh, how this would work out, but um, is it true then that you would have so many comparisons like direct comparisons? Is that the way it worked or did you have like kind of a cloud of this is like this function of code represents mm. unexposed and this function of code represents
2: the other? No, so so the goal here is to actually have direct comparisons, right? So we want we want two actual transactions that are occurring in, you know, within those same buckets, and th- those buckets have a lot of uh, criteria. So how go many into- were there? How many did you get? So, I mean, you know, we are starting from a vast number of, uh, of transactions in coastal properties, uh, in, in, in coastal counties, um, and once we sort of consolidated everything down, I think we had about 100,000 observations that we we're basing off of. Wow. Now, You know, some of those, you know, maybe were were more or less useful, Um, you know, obviously it's great if you have multiple, you know, 10 properties that that are falling into the same bucket that allows, allows you to really precisely estimate what's happening. And so, you know, when we think about sort of the useful data, maybe it was about half that, um, that was actually kind of- Sizable study.
0: sample, 50,000 is a, a
2: sizable sample. Uh, yeah, would I, think. I mean, yeah. again, statisticians developed all these tools. It seemed enough for us to fairly precisely uh, estimate the effect that we, that we estimated. And, and just to get at your question, uh, what we found was that there's about a 7% discount for homes that are exposed to sea level rise risk. And I wanna be uh, clear about what I mean by sea level rise risk. NOAA provides these maps up to six feet of global average sea level rise. So we counted you as exposed if you were anywhere up to the six foot band. Okay. Okay? So six foot properties versus, you know, we don't know, maybe seven, eight, 10, 20 foot properties. it, That's didn't, it didn't matter way. after six. It was if you if, but if you're if if the inundation
0: model showed that your property would be flooded on occasion some, with some frequency, uh, more than a foot up to six, that was considered exposed versus a property that was not con- was not likely to be inundated at all. Can you? can you fill in I don't know this is a this is a technical question that the that the engineers would normally answer and the hydrologist guys would answer but what accounted for a property not being exposed that was from in a similar distance from the shoreline as you mentioned in a similar type of barrier island market there were properties that were not exposed to the risk what what factually would did you find uh those groups of unexposed shared in common what characteristic explained that
2: yeah um so i can as you as you very astutely noted i'm not an engineer uh Mm. and, and and so uh you know i may make a total fool of myself right now but i can answer this from a uh statistical standpoint okay um and an anecdotal standpoint so uh Statistically, uh, I don't know if I had mentioned before, but another criteria that, that that decided our buckets was actually elevation. So we didn't want too much variation in right. elevation going into these buckets. Um, nonetheless, within those buckets, elevation still explains something like thirty or forty percent right. of our exposure variable. Right. Okay. So elevation I- is accounting for some aspect of this. For sure. The other thing that seems to account for it is sort of uh, you know, man-made or, or, or natural geographic features yep. that cause certain properties to be exposed and other properties to not be exposed. So you know, a property that actually is lower-lying then another property may not be exposed to 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 yeah. the sea level rise risk because there's a hill and a highway berm and maybe a dike or something like that 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 currently prevent that from Great. falling into exposure bucket. I mean, at the extreme, think about Death Valley, right? That's very low, that that would be technically exposed to sea level rise risk if there weren't a mountain range in front of us. So that's yeah. kind of the thing we, we saw going on and would be confirmed by the statistics. Great. So makes sense and on Galveston
0: Island being behind the seawall which is at 13 feet high and uh, you uh, the homes that are behind the seawall are protected or less exposed to sea level rise than the west end of Galveston Island where there are low dunes if any and no seawall. So so that's the kind of thing I was trying to make sure that the listeners were following along with. so the bottom line was, you guys came out, you did this analysis, you run the models, and the, and the conclusion and you is- you get 50,000 ma- like viable, comparable- yep, tests Yeah, tests to yeah, yeah. explore. The net effect is a house that is exposed to risk of sea level rise is worth 7% less on average than a house that is not. Is that the answer
2: to the-, the I mean, uh, 7% is a very precise estimate. You can, yeah. you know, when you do any sort of statistics, there's always a range around it. Okay. And I think that range, uh, the 90, our 95% confidence yes. interval, which is the way we talk about this. Of course. Is something like 3% to 9% okay. or something like Statistically that.
0: Statistically significant range.
2: Exactly. Is, is, uh, exactly.
0: Okay. So um, were you surprised? Did that let's let's use number for seven percent for the sake of the discussion and we all know that this is actually somewhere in the mid-range of what what the analysis showed um as a as a researcher going into it running all the numbers when that popped out where you're like boy i thought it would be higher or boy i thought it would be lower or that's kind of what i thought it would be did you have a sense how did it feel compared to your intuition. Yeah, did it feel good? Yeah. Did <laughs> you write? Right. Did, did that seem to be Yeah, how, how 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 did the three of you as the researchers yeah. respond to that result?
2: It was it was a it was a split verdict, right? So I okay. I think there were um I'm not going to name names, but there was at okay. least one of us who said there's no way we're going to find a discount because people don't even know that this is something that they should be thinking about. At the same time, we did a ton of research on like media in these uh in these areas yeah and i would say i mean the new york times was picking this up in 2016 15 and 16 and running sort of very large features but these local markets were talking about this i don't know since 2009 10 easily um and you would see sort of uh, in the internet in our archives, these like little articles about how like, hey, this, this people's house just get flooded by the tide coming in. Um, and, I, and I think that that has snowballed a lot. So in our current media environment, hmm. it's like, oh yeah, of course this is an issue. Whereas, you know, I think for these coastal communities, it was probably more of an issue, you know, earlier than, than me as a Coloradan uh, it would have thought. So I kind of, having done a little bit of that media research, I kind of thought maybe there's something going on, and in answer to your question, did I feel good? I, I sort of only felt good once we uh, dug a little deeper. So my first instinct, and maybe maybe it's because most sort of uh, economics researchers, particularly the ones that actually look at data, tend to be very pessimistic about their first result. They're like, you know, I see something, but I'm pretty sure that's wrong, and I'll, let me get to the bottom of why. Why is that? Is that a is that a cultural thing among economists? Good, good, or it good be... skepticism, <laughs> have. is that, is that to just have? a good
1: scientific skepticism? Yeah.
2: I mean, I think it was ingrained upon me by you know my advisor, who I would show him a result, and he would he would, he would come bullshit. back and say <laughs> bullshit. Exactly. Um, and he's like, "Prove it to me." So I think that's that's where I got it from. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, I do think it leads to better science if if you're more um, if you're more skeptical of your own work. Yeah. Um, what what really um, made us feel like we had we were on to sort of something that i would consider like truth uh were a couple of follow-on results that we found in that paper so the first one the first thing we thought was okay well if i if this is truly reflecting a risk that is really far in the future right then who's going to bear this risk well if i own the property Sure, I'm going to bear that risk, right? I'm going to pay down my mortgage. I'm be sitting on this house. Tide starts coming in. That's bad news for me. If I'm a renter today, though, am I, do I really care? How much do I care about this thing? Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say almost none at all. I'm almost enjoying all, all. all the benefits of being near the coast, and I'm paying none of the costs of you know potentially down the line. I mean, of course, there is sort of some hurricane risk, things like that. Um, I'm not paying these costs down the line, right? So, you know, a confounding thing might've been, hey, this is all just like a hurricane risk, right? It has nothing to do with the future. It's just, you know, I, I, I'm exposed to much more flooding today. Well, if that were the case, then renters would kind of demand a discount right? in the same way that a homeowner would, right? Yeah. And when we take it to the rental market and rental data is, is really hard to come by. So, you know, I, I want to caveat this. We Our sample is much smaller with the rental data. Um, we we find we find nothing right so um we find a zero effect, and, and it's... Renters are not concerned with they sea don't level care. rise. <laughs> they don't care. Um, the price of the rental is unaffected
1: by yeah. the level well, of exposure. I've got to say, in my one week or whatever, I mean, I don't know if you had a minimum duration, but a lot of coastal rentals are very short and <laughs> right. sea level rise Yeah, very... at the
2: extreme, I don't think that, uh, that the VRBO rentals are pricing this. Um, so, so, you know, that gave us confidence that it's at least a medium to long term risk. Um, we also did some additional analysis to exclude hurricane risk as, as driving it. So NOAA, our friends at NOAA, also provide these great maps of storm surge exposure. Uh, and I can just run the exact same analysis on storm surge and you see that that doesn't change our results. So controlling for uh, that storm surge doesn't change our result one bit. Right. So. You you get the exact same estimate when you're comparing properties that are not even in a storm surge region. Um, So so that again also yeah that reinforces the result exactly. So so we really sort of do think that this is individuals or or um, I'll talk about them in a second. You know, uh, people buying sort of small groups of homes, uh, thinking long term about the future. the other, the other things that really kind of uh, m- lined up with our priors and, and made us confident about the study is that we found that the folks who price this, the buyers who price this, um, tend to first come from areas that um, and this is, Yale does all these climate surveys. I'm not sure if you all are familiar with that. Um, yeah, they have a great website and a great research institute at Yale.
0: The climate. It's tremendous. Yeah, tremendous. It's a t- climate Research Center, I forget the name of it, but it's absolutely yeah, stellar. Yeah, Climate Connection. Climate yeah, Connection, yeah, it's absolutely like fantastic. Um,
2: yeah, uh, so you know they provide the, the survey data and they ask you know at the county level, how worried are you about climate change? How, how much do you think climate change will affect you directly? Um, so when we partition our, our study on on the areas where uh, large percentage of people think that this will affect them directly versus areas where they don't, we find the effect predominantly in the areas where people think that this that climate change is an issue that it There's will. There's a correlation between
0: awareness exactly. and the outcome, uh, or maybe a causal relationship yep. between the awareness that is indicated in the survey and the discount result that you're finding on property that right. does make perfect sense right. uh, because they have to understand it. And I think you're right that coastal folks, they're not unfamiliar with the
2: topic and haven't been for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other group of people who, who tend to, uh, we see price this is um, the, 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 non-owner occupying buyers so it turns out in the data these these folks tend to be p- people who own three four five six homes They they're not like big corporations and and i it's hard to test the big corporations uh because they don't appear to be buying a ton of like single family homes right um but these non-owner occupying buyers we think appear to act more sophisticated and they they tend to demand a discount as well.
0: Okay, that would make sense, and and it, it's good to see that that's confirmed. Uh, a small group, uh, real estate investment trust, buying uh, coastal property, renting that through Airbnb. These are investment strategies. They are looking at returns. They're, they're sophisticated buyers. They're capable of, so you would expect to see, and you did see, that in that community of buyers, a demand for a discount on the price based on exposure. That's, you know, I th- here's one of the things I always struggle with and and I'm going to throw this out as an example but um in Bolivar Peninsula in Texas down here, which is in Galveston County, it's a low-lying barrier island about 6 feet elevation across the island uh was uh just really wiped clean by Hurricane Ike, which was a major storm, I guess 20 kind of going to get 2008. The, 8 I believe probably okay, Uh, and literally afterward, there were very few structures remaining. They weren't damaged; they had been washed completely off of the island into the bay, and a few that were built very high survived. But there were slabs just picked clean, uh, hundreds and hundreds. The interesting thing since then: the peninsula has been largely rebuilt. The houses are bigger. And they're more expensive, and the property values have gone up. So I've always wondered about um, whether risk, particularly coastal risk, is even a relevant factor in the behavior of human beings. I mean, I how do we? Well, said, Dan Martin had, was
1: saying that we we're going to go in the water. That like eventually yeah. we'll just build out in the water. Yeah, he's that's right. The, the was, demand to be there is so high. I mean. I, I, Yeah. Anyway, Peter, I'm sorry to step on it. No, but that's, you're right. He, it's hard to square that,
0: although I think maybe the questions are different, but how would you explain or how would you try to square those two if I'm, if, if what I'm saying is accurate, which I think it is, but how would you explain
2: that given what you found? Yeah. I, so I think that there, there, there's a lot to, a lot to think about in, in sort of that, that scenario. Um, I think one, just uh, stepping back from just that particular instance, but there are lots of communities where you'd be silly not to do something as a community to prevent sea level rise. I mean, you, we talked about seawalls before. You know, the San Francisco Bay Area, there's a lot of exposure there to, to sea level rise risk. They're not going to let that thing just go into the water. They are not. Right? So there's, I, and it's costly. In New, New York, they're not going to let New York go nope. into the water, right? Nope. And I was actually um, uh, recently talking with one of my friends who who works at the uh, New York Council, um, City Council, and she was saying that they actually already are, are planning for this, right? So they, they have, uh, the the biggest obstacle actually is not sort of the seawalls and preventing encroachment, it's the sewer system. Hmm. Because the way that whole thing is, it's a gravity draining system, And the second, you know, everything gets built up more, I guess that kind of is going to, and that's like, that's the 10 billion or $20 billion problem in New York, rather than just, you know, building the, 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 you know, Southern tip wall higher. Um, And so I think that there are clear communities and clear areas where, while sea level rise will increase the costs of living there, almost surely, surely these properties will not be worthless. However, having spoken with sort of a, a number of uh, of geologists and, and and engineers who think about these problems, there are also a lot of areas where that is not a cost-effective strategy. Correct. Right. And so, like, a lot of the Florida coast apparently has this very porous um, limestone limestone where the water comes up. It doesn't. It doesn't need a direct path to get to nope. you. Uh, you know. It, places like that where a seawall is is not going to do anything it it seems as though these places really do have a problem and you know uh, maybe there's some preservation of the areas with extremely good views or or recreation access um but i i think there is where you're going to get sort of
1: communities Maybe the costs are going to go up. It's going to be just harder when it's wet. Hello. Yeah. The why it's, it's more expensive in the water. We all know this. Yeah. Right. That's probably why we don't build in the yeah, water. We're now. terrestrial <laughs> folks. You know, I can't gotta say. Yeah.
2: So, so I think the costs are going to go up and, and I think, you know, one thing that uh, not to go on and on, but another thing that we do in the study is we, is we exclude those extreme, like those beachfront super high value properties. Okay. And we, and we get, if anything our, our estimate sharpens um because i exactly what you said it's unlikely that west palm beach or you know regular palm beach i guess uh, yeah, those th- those houses are not going going to um you know reflect this this thing at all
0: different different economics driving that market um uh, but I think you're right to to distinguish between where we are likely to make pretty much whatever investment is required. New York City, Lower Manhattan. The proposal, as you say, is about ten billion to twenty billion. Now it's well under development by the Corps of Engineers. The city of Charleston, South Carolina, is in the middle of a major investigation of the wall that's going to protect uh, the historic parts of the city. It's a three to five billion dollar project. There's the thirty billion dollar Ike Dyke in Galveston Bay. There are and San Francisco Bay has got multi-billion dollar projects about the um, uh, the,
1: Embarcadero. uh, Thank
0: you, the Embarcadero in downtown. I mean, those are places where whatever the check needs to be will be done. Uh, Barrier Island residential single-family communities is a little different deal. Uh, They're going to have a much harder time justifying the level of investment to to get to a point of protection This particular topic we're talking about, of course, is a favorite topic of Dr. Rob Young at the Center for the Study of Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University, who has been saying this and and demanding that the policymakers start to think about the differentiation here, to hold out the idea that all coastal communities at equal risk will will receive hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in investment to protect homes is simply not true. Uh, And it's the dirty secret on the coast is that we're really not telling people out there that a lot of folks are going to get abandoned uh, in terms of government investment for protection because we simply can't afford it and it's not worth it. I'm
1: sorry to say. Can I, uh, I'm, I'm just curious because one of the other things that you mentioned that you're studying is this municipal bond angle. And I think there's really a connection here between the way that communities are, you know, as prices are going up and also, like, say, you know, um, the markets are shifting such that these are no longer owner-occupied homes. They're going to be rental units, short-term units, and maybe uh, the residents won't be full-time. You know, these properties will still be taxed, but the people who own them might not be voting in those jurisdictions and be as actively involved. I'm curious to know... uh, if 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 this little if that's part of the connection to your interest in the
2: municipal bond uh, paper that you did, um, well, what I would say is is actually I've, I have different work that I, I I think you've highlighted an incredibly interesting question. Um, I don't know if this was uh, yeah, intended. abandon my question. Yeah. but go for yours. No, uh, I, so I, I think that there is uh, there's there's a, a, an important idea that that communities will ensure this, and how is that? How do you measure? the extent to which a whole community is exposed to this risk and and we do look at n- municipal bonds and we do find that there does seem to be a very small discount there you know uh prices reflect this this kind of very unlikely but still their potential that these communities will 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 be unable to fund their bonds in in actually somewhat the near term right so municipal bonds the, the average uh, maturity which means the average sort of time until they're due is I, I think in our sample something like seven uh, seven or eight years and so if you're seeing prices there it's telling you that yeah. that there's a there's a very outside chance that that these folks you know start to feel the, the pinch of this in the near term um, but but the, the I, I thought the more interesting thing that you, you kind of mentioned was, What does it mean when you have certain communities that are exposed to this risk and where, you know, potentially through uh, a change away from owner occupiers, but potentially even through something we talked about before, beliefs in climate change, Hmm. you're getting a, a sort of a sorting effect where certain people are moving in and other folks are moving out. Um, and I, I can't help but, but relate this to, a, to another paper we have, which is called uh, uh, Residential Sorting on Climate Change Risk, where we actually find that uh, very uh, strongly along the political spectrum, we are seeing this sorting. So we have sort of uh, individual ro- voter registration data that we can match to the property level. Oh, wow. And what we find is that, go. Uh, that, that Republicans – on the margin, are more likely to buy a sea level rise-exposed home than Democrats. Wow! Right? And this is controlling for sort of all of the variables: you know, age, education, uh, economic position, exa- wealth, income, all that wealth, income, house, pr- you know, general house price, all ah. that sort of thing. Wow! Um, so this sorting will exactly exacerbate, you know, any potential. Um, uh, you know, local or sort of, you know, even regional response to climate change, right? So, uh, you know, you need to look no further than Georgia to see that a very small change in the constituency of an area yeah. can have a vast implication for the voting outcomes uh, of, in this case, the nation, right? Um, well, if, if you if you suddenly replace five, ten percent of the Democrats living in an area with Republicans, who Sort of, uh, if you look at the survey data, tend not to really believe that climate change is happening, that it will affect them, right? So going back to these Yale surveys, yeah. they, they also split on, um, or I guess Pew does this, Pew splits on uh, political orientation, find about a 30 to 40 percent gap wow. between beliefs, uh, you know. About uh, cl- global warming between uh, Democrats and Republicans, it is the most divisive issue. Is that right? That they survey wow. guns, immigration, healthcare, all of those are less divisive than climate change. Um, wow! So if you can imagine, you're replacing people who basically, huh. uh, you know, uh, are advocating that this is a problem and and are and are seeking solutions with folks who are saying that this is not a problem and ostensibly are not necessarily seeking those solutions, That's you interesting. wonder how this That's affects the local investment, yeah. adaptation, and and sort of mitigation of these yeah. risks.
0: Well, I, I, I a mean, couple of things. Uh, having worked in coastal communities, Tyler and I were doing special tax districts for uh, shoreline restoration projects and raising the money locally to pay for these projects so we spent a lot of time in coastal communities it's not uncommon now in beach towns around america that where 50 to 60 percent or more of the housing stock is not residential owner occupied and is investor owned property and really affects the voting patterns and the political power of how the community operates so it's it's common that there are external owners and buyers. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me is Florida. When it comes to the relationship between political identity and understanding of climate, Florida is a state with a very, as you as you know, strong conservative leadership across the board, much like our state of Texas. Uh, but it is a state that is openly uh, Uh, discusses accepts and works to respond to climate change and what what I think happens is although generally Republicans may be less open to the notion of climate change that's true only until the value of the stuff that you own starts getting uh, getting wrecked and then all of a sudden where's the government where's the money where's the investment is starting to happen it's why uh, red Tide has become a major issue for the governor Ron DeSantis is because Poor water quality on the Florida coast is blowing up the the economy of the tourist economy And you better damn well get serious. So there's the opportunity for denial um, For you know, I believe we'll see can overcome a natural inclination against climate change for conservatives like man I want this house. To, so where's my beach nourishment project? Where's my government intervention? Where's my public spending? All of a sudden, I want it because I've got money on the table. Yeah, As I like to say reality is, a, is,
1: is an effective teacher. Well, and the other the other piece here is that it reminds me, and this might be a stretch, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's an un, you know this is an unfiltered program. It reminds me of the pandemic of the unvaccinated that we just had. It's like the knowledge is out there, but you know, this could really come back. Yeah. I mean, um, this sorting that you're describing could really be, I anticipate that this risk will come true and that there will be costs associated with this. And I'd love to see their work on that.
0: I mean, what a cool thing to track the relationship between political. By the way, I have the
1: the paper right here, by the way, you missed the, the beginning. You have a very creative little, uh, title on this. It's voting with their sandals. Partisan Residential Sorting on Climate
2: Change Risk. I I do have to stop you right there. Uh, Wrong paper? No, that's the right paper, but we actually changed the title because uh, the voting with their sandals, uh, it's a long economics thing, but, but, but a referee told us that basically that's... It's it's not clever, okay. but but not actually the right title. So and, and we, we accepted like that it. we accepted that criticism. It's like voting with your feet. That's a play on the phrase. Exactly. I mean, so so it's people like that. Understand but, what that is? Yeah. But there's a yeah. There's the a editors. technicality there right. that they didn't like. Anyway. Bombs. But but I. <laughs> uh, the. Uh, I, I think you're exactly right. So the the, the issue with this though is that you know where the rubber meets the road is potentially not for a long time. And and as we know from all of these communities who are developing their their adaptation response right now. Yeah. You you potentially can't wait so long, right? You can't wait until these houses are already being flooded before deciding what to do about the issue, right? And so yeah, you know, I, I tend to agree, right? And and in the study, we actually highlight that storm surge risk appears to be priced equally or considered equally by both Democrats and Republicans, right? Mm. So we all agree a, a hurricane could hit here. There's no... We've seen the data. We know that's a possibility. We're all going to pay the... You know, uh, how, none of us are going to, you know, overly sort one way or the other into this. The second you have... Um, you know, a really long term risk that some of us disagree on, that's where we get the sorting. That's where we see uh, Republicans more willing to buy. Different visions
1: of the future, man. Wow. Exactly.
2: And and yeah, as you said, you know, potentially in 15 years, they're going to be like, hey, where's my seawall? And, you know, the, yeah. uh, the communities that build them potentially will be like, well, what's so great about this years. is, you know, as as
0: what we commonly do on, on the network is we're talking to the engineers and the scientists and uh, the folks that are working on adaptation or projects or policies to fund it. Um, the imp- climate change uh, is also factoring down into other disciplines far beyond the community of people who show up at ASBPA's conference where Tyler and I were just in New Orleans. But I think it's important that the engineers and the practitioners out there start to understand how the economists and the financial analysts are studying this problem. I think it would be a fascinating addition to ASBPA. Uh, So I hope that you guys continue to do it. I know there's a group of folks around the world who are really taking a hard look at the financials behind climate change. Uh, So it's been a totally cool thing to, to learn a little bit about, Ryan.
2: Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It was a pleasure.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, it is Dr. Ryan C. Lewis from the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's a professor of finance and the co-author of several great papers on sea level rise and coastal uh, finance, both in the municipal bond market and in the real estate market. Great to check that out. Uh, Google up Ryan Lewis studies, University of Colorado, and you'll find there's a, a large number of papers fascinating discussion, Ryan. We really appreciate you uh, telling our audience about your work. Thank you. Been a boy. Take one, better.